Then we gotta talk about stuff. And then I gotta we edit this stuff. To. No, none of this has to be done. We can just watch fucking clip, hard knocks. clips from uh, 2004 to 2009 movies. Yeah. Back when they were. Back when they made comedy. Back when everyone was so scared. Cast Iron Brains, a podcast that has concluded here one week before the end of summer break and the glorious return of public schooling. That Children are annoying. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host, that's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here too. How you doing tonight, Lori? <sighs> Tonight is Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. Lori is still getting over a big talk we had this morning about... wasn't a big talk. Uh, about <laughs> the subscriptions that we subscribe to, the Disney Pluses and the Netflixes and the HBOs and... Mm-hmm. That Disney Plus wants to raise... Well, we'll get into all of that a little bit later we on. We don't maybe. have to talk about it. We could just not. Abe, it's Wednesday. I spent all day trying to wipe it off of myself so that I came home nice. So let's maybe not talk about it. Well, you always start these podcasts so nice and progress to only no, more niceness as the No, I mean when I walked the in the door. E- I walked not to... Not this. Not like uh, home. <laughs> right. Certainly not this. Abe, I understand it's Wednesday because you were uh, stranded. Well, that's not why it's Wednesday, but... uh, My story, (laughs) that is why it's Wednesday in the context of the show. Give me too much credit. (laughs) We are uh, recording on a Wednesday night because, as I understand it, you were stranded inside a whale's vagina on, on Monday. Is that correct? Discovered by the Germans in 1904... They named it Santiago, which, of course, in German means a whale's vagina. That is uh, somewhat uh, accurate. Uh, so I uh, last week I went to Kansas City for a work thing for the week. And yes. um, there was a planned, you know, yet another person that I know is turning 40. Um, and, and so there was a trip in San Diego. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll be done with the work on Friday, Friday morning. I couldn't make the thing work, so I flew back to Atlanta, laid over here, and then I flew to San Diego with the plan that I would come that, back Sunday night. That is a dreadful plan. Yes. That is wait, how is you, that wait, acceptable? Wait, Why yes. wasn't there some way to get you from Missouri? Yeah, from to California to San Diego. You would think, oh, well, I'm halfway across the country. Just finish it up, and then you know, circle back to to Atlanta when I'm done. There was no direct flight. I don't know. Maybe there's not it's a lot of because you were in a regional airport between Kansas City and San Diego. One of the connecting flights was Atlanta. Like, oh, you can go through Atlanta. It's like, all yeah. right, I guess I'll just do that. Yeah. Does it count as connecting? If <laughs> yes. it's <laughs> and it was the a other long, direction, it was long enough of a layover that I actually just came back to my. Apartment. You went home yeah, during just, that layover. Yeah. Fantastic. Ate a sandwich and well, then I went back. There wasn't. You couldn't have like flown no, into Missouri's Chicago. No, Missouri's a regional or airport. So, there were many options through Chicago, Chicago or through some other place. I was like, what, why am I doing that? Why not go home? Why not it, go home? Because that sucks. Right. It sucks. But 
it was going to suck any which way. There was the added benefit. So that's true. Uh, this can the the reason why uh, it took an extra day for me to get home is that uh, the the planners of this 40th in San Diego opted with the uh, cut rate airline uh, Frontier, uh, and uh, they have Mm-mm. very very cheap prices. And usually there's a reason why they're so cheap. Uh, we found out this weekend. So Frontier on Sunday, we get to the airport two hours before, just like they tell you to do. And like an hour and a half before the flight, they're like, oh, yeah, that plane is not here. Um, I don't know. Maybe tomorrow. And so like we had to get a hotel. Everybody else was. Maybe, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> like, Absolutely by the way, not. Frontier, and I can't even fault them. Other people were mad. And they were like, you know, trying to be upset. There's only like one representative from Frontier, that poor woman who was getting all the harassment. But there's nothing she can do. She probably has the same information we do. She's looking at the board like, oh, huh, the plane's not coming. Uh, <laughs> right. There is no service. I mean, th- there is no live person you can talk no. to. There's no email. There's no chat. There's no nothing. It's just you get text alerts that tell you it's not here. We'll tell why, you are you, why are you flying Frontier? And you are a person. You are an upstanding Real live adult. You don't usually fly these budget airlines right. when all your boys are flying the budget airlines. Right. Why did you accept these uh, <laughs> so the, circumstances this time? So, the, the you know, these trips I don't plan, right? And and I'm just given the dates, and uh, these are the airlines uh, that we're going with. And it was, like, significantly cheaper. I don't, I, I don't understand how Frontier functions as an airline because a, a round-trip ticket from— Abe. A, uh, based on recent experiences, you might they almost don't. say they don't. But yeah, they don't. The, I'm saying mathematically, it doesn't. Uh, the math doesn't add up. Like so, it is like it was three hundred dollars cheaper to fly on Frontier than it is on Delta. The next, it was like one seventy versus like you know four fifty or something. Right, like that. which would have been great if, in fact, you had been able to fly on Frontier. On the days that you chose for your itinerary. Yes, yes. I've looked at these uh, these budget airlines a bunch because, of course, it is appealing, right? Like, because there was one that started operation out of Charlottesville here and was flying to Orlando, but only on Mondays and Fridays. But only on Mondays and Fridays. But it was like thirty nine dollars yeah. was the was the like thirty nine dollars was the cheapest ticket. Now that only gets you and the clothes on your back yes. yeah. onto the airplane. So yeah. like if you want backpack twenty dollars. Right. Yeah. Uh, anything <laughs> literally anything in your hand, yeah. it was it was gonna be like I think it was forty or fifty dollars for every bag, whether it's uh, a checked piece of baggage or a, a carry on or a personal item. And so that forty dollar ticket if you have a purse or a backpack and a suitcase then all of a sudden there's another 100 bucks on top of that. So it's not exactly as cheap as it looks. But if you're the sort of person who is literally just trying to fly to Vegas or something and arrive with the clothes on your back and whatever money you've got in your wallet and then leave two days later and not work, uh, yeah, I get the appeal. But every other time I've gone and priced these tickets out where it's like, okay, we're a family of four, we're going to have between a total of three and five bags between carry-ons and and actual luggage and all of that stuff, it never works out to being a deal to the point where it's like so obvious. Especially because you know they're unreliable. Yes. Right. They're relatively unreliable. So it's like, okay, maybe for the family we could save $175 or something altogether on a $1,000 trip or something. Right. But that in the face of... 
uh, if you miss that flight or if there are problems with that flight, there might not be another one for like two and a half days. Yes. Like, whereas with Delta or American or United or whatever, it's like, okay, we'll get you on the next one because there's always a next one. But with these other airlines, it's like, ah, it's not really a next one until next week. Right. So. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess in these, uh, I think like Breeze or these other airlines that, that don't fly yep. daily, like I think Frontier was daily and that's why it was just the next day. Yeah, they have a lot. But like, they, they, Speaking of like the upcharge, you know, everything's built around, oh, you want like a soda? That's like $8. If you want this, it's like everything is cost something, right? And they have the, uh, you can have like a book bag you can put your stuff in. That's, that's part of it or like a purse or what have you. But now they uh, apparently have this new policy where they're like sign up your backpack because some people are trying to stuff it. And they put you through this like humiliating uh, ritual of like, hey, you, out of the line, there's this like – little contraption that they have that you got to stick your bag in and it has to fit or else right. you'll be charged a hundred dollars or something like making the whole thing not worth it um and and one of my friends had to go through that they they passed the test <laughs> but they were a little worried like oh and that and then he's like taking out pairs of socks and like handing them <laughs> Actually, off to you like look you got to wear three pairs of socks today sorry abe it's part of the deal me turning 40 means you've got to wear three pairs of socks and you got to put these boxers in your pocket that's just the fucking rules because i'm 40 sorry Actually, funny you mentioned that uh they had to uh, leave their sh- a pair of shoes a pair of shoes didn't make the cut basically the shoes were cheaper oh, than the hundred dollars that they were going to charge them so they said fuck the shoes and they left them in atlanta just so yeah so there is there is no real airlines right. you maniacs so there is no uh I, I would not recommend using these airlines for just about most scenarios the one exception would be like if you're just traveling solo i mean i'm with this group but fuck them right uh it's not like i have like any kids to worry about or like a spouse or anything like that it's just me i have like two days baked in as vacation so i don't have to be working on wednesday right. yeah it's the time flexibility right. and so like if you have to go somewhere don't fly these actually just avoid flying these airlines in most cases but they their way of apologizing for like oh our bad uh is that they'll give you 75 dollars that you can only use on future fr- like basically like hey we suck mm-hmm. but like that's standard <laughs> could you use our airline in the future um and so we'll see but uh yeah that's where i was that's the thing that makes me most mad about flying and like when it doesn't work yeah. like all i can think is what if I made a client, like they had an appointment at noon and they got there at like 1145 and they've had this appointment for months and they sat there until seven o'clock. And I was just like, oh, sorry, I can do it yeah. now. <laughs> it would be so beyond yeah. OK. Or then you do it now and then, and then you're like, all right. And also, here's a forty dollar voucher uh, for yeah. you to use again in three months. <laughs> If you if next like. time, next time I'll throw in some free conditioner. <laughs> just like there's no recourse, you just have to sit there and take right. it. The the they couldn't uh come, you know I guess they have to like cite a reason for why it took them an, an extra day, and they couldn't use weather because there's no weather issue. They couldn't use anything other than crew rest, like which you think you yeah. would think ahead of time, like oh we already have this slotted for them to fly and work around the crew rest around that but no they're like oh yeah they forgot to sleep and so we can't right (laughs) very bizarre uh unrelated but when i was flying back from denver and it was a little tiny little plane from philadelphia to charlottesville for the last leg of that flight like uh 
I don't remember the name of the plane, but it was a it was one row of seats on the left side and two seats on the so it was one on the left, two on the right, and maybe twenty rows deep. Like it was, this is a very small plane, as a as small as they get when the, as as far as the, like regional jets go. And there was that ritual of, and this wasn't about it being a budget airline. This was just that there's nowhere to put bags. And so they do have to check everybody's bag to make sure it fits into this slot. If it doesn't fit into the slot, then they have to put it under the plane or what have you. Right. Um, which is fine. And so everybody has to go through that. There was this very fancy man. He was an older guy uh, in his sixties. If I had to guess, I would say lawyer or doctor. He was an Indian fellow. So I lean more towards doctor, doctor, probably, uh, being a racist, but very fancy guy. Like just by looking at him, you're like, ah, very well right. put together. This is a this is a fancy a man. Dapper fella. Dapper fella. Well dressed. Well put together. Uh, and as he goes to speak to the gate agent, very well spoken. Uh, and he's like, I wanted to see about getting an upgrade on this flight to uh, first class. And she looks at him, and she looks over her shoulder at the plane that's sitting there on the tarmac, and she says something like, uh, "This is a, a black lady in Philadelphia." We ain't got no first class on this one, sweetie. Uh, and then as he's walking away, she goes, oh, 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 and I need you to put your bag in this thing to make sure it fits. And he, he just had the most, like, offended, like, the way, the way that only a dapper, well-put-together man of a certain age and of a certain class and wealth can be offended. Like, that, just that very particular type of offense. There's a meme. Like, yes. It's the white guy. You have to put your bag in the same stupid fucking metal slot What's that we that all have mean? to put our bag in. Did, anyway. did he perceive that as a retaliatory? Like, because he asked the question that he was being punished? I think that he saw it as a slight. Okay. And, yes, in, in part because he had, he had somehow stepped out of line. Let that be a lesson to you. That's right. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Oppenheimer oh, yeah. here at the top so that we don't we don't get yelled at at the end. I did not uh, take the opportunity uh, to go see this three-hour movie again. You didn't really have one. I didn't really have an opportunity. I kept an eye on the Alamo tickets for it just in case. And over the course of last week, as the – now, granted, the theater has gotten smaller as time has gone on. So it's not in the yeah. big theater because Teenage Mutant and Ninja Meg Turtles too, is there. And it's uh, dibs. Right, the Meg 2 comes out, and it wants the big screens as well, and then Barbie is still doing well, so it's in a reasonably large theater. So Oppenheimer slowly made its way from, like, the big screen to the medium screen to now the smallest screen at our local movie theater. But still, nearly or entirely sold out basically every showing besides, like, the 10, 10 o'clock in the morning ones. Uh, they were they were consistently selling out. So this movie is still doing very doing, well, uh, at least here in this town. Sound of Freedom numbers, I see. Still packing them in. I guess so, yeah. Did you go see it a second time no. yet or no? No. I was watching the Meg 2 in Kansas City. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> All right. So what do we think about Oppenheimer as a uh, as a, as a piece of art, Abe? Eh? What did you think of so, the movie? So, you know, I, I did enjoy the movie. I saw this like in the middle of the night uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, the One of the impressions I was left with is – there were certain scenes. I mean, the movies. I'm not saying this is an Aaron Sorkin movie. This is a very, uh, you know, uh, different type of movie. But like, there were, maybe because it was like the the depositions and the court scenes, it it just kind of sometimes felt kind of Aaron Sorkin-y. And and this 
Goober Oppenheimer complaining about he's building this fucking bomb and he has misgivings like I'm supposed to feel bad for this guy and I think that Truman guy was spot on like fuck this guy like what do you mean you have no conception of it to what you're doing like oh I feel bad very obnoxious at the end but uh, yeah. I don't care I don't know why uh, that rubbed me the wrong way but people the, who are the, who ex- do- the expression of moral <laughs> ambiguity about Possibly the most morally consequential technological device built in the history of mankind rubbed yes, you the wrong it way. It is baked into everything you're doing. What do you mean? What do you think was going to happen? Like you, like what are we talking about? Like you were pursuing this course that was going to lead to the deaths of many, and then when it happened, you're like oh fuck! Now that's what people are going to think of me. So, what do you, <laughs> what do you think about the case for? Somebody like so. So what you're saying is that Oppenheimer, by virtue of the fact that he and his uh, compatriots chose to work on this project, they should not be permitted to, or at least their their moral compunction is is ill. It's ill fitting in some way. They they have no they have no right to it because they have chosen to do this. What about the fact that? Uh, we knew that certainly the Soviets were on their way to a bomb and the Germans, at least, let's say, halfway through the war, we believed that the Germans would be capable of producing such a weapon uh, in relatively short order as well. And therefore, you're sort of compelled uh, if you believe that the least bad actor available should get it first. Right. So I, I understand why he would be moping after the fact or whatever. I just don't like seeing it. So I'm not... Even holding it, like, I just because in I've, uh, this happens a lot where people like do knowingly be, like things that are gonna be there's gonna be a certain consequence as a result of your actions, and then they're like, oh, I didn't mean to do. It's like, yeah, you you did. Like it's whatever. Like stop moping around. You're saying like, why make a movie about that? <laughs> That's well. I was trying to figure out like how- it's kind of what you're saying. I'm fine with it existing. I just don't want to see it. It sounds like you're speaking my language of this isn't interesting. Why are you making this well, movie? It, it, to that point, like I said, I'm glad that they made the movie because it was entertaining as a whole. But like before the trailers came out, I was trying to figure out like how were they going to tell this story, right? I mean, they're not going to show the bomb. They're going to probably talk about this Oppenheimer for a little, right? So like what is going to be the – what's going to be the story that holds oh, this, this thing together? And it was basically this like – Betrayal, the fucking dope. No, shitty women. And <laughs> the, the women uh, being involved. But, like, it was just like. What's going to hold together this Christopher Nolan movie? Uh, a non linear narrative structure and crazy bitches. <laughs> That's what's going to hold together the Christopher Nolan somebody, movie. It's pretty consistent. Somebody was uh, talking about, like, uh, was liking it to the. Uh, the social network. Basically, it's like you have to tell the story and then you have to find a way to do it. And so they're going through, we're going to go back and forth. Ha- you know, they're suspected of being a commie sympathizer after the fact. Very ungrateful, by the way. Like, you're okay before when I'm building your stupid bomb and now it's not okay anymore. Uh, but, like, you kind of have to tell a story a certain way and they kind of had to do it in this weird, like, let's do the, you know, these uh, depositions. He's interacting with these commie people. Maybe he's sharing information with them. Uh, like they kind of had to find a way to tell the story. I kind of had a similar issue with Barbie where like the story had to be told a certain way to get to all the beats and the story itself is whatever, but like the beats were good. It's kind of like that 
with this one, where it's like this. I'm glad the to- story was told, but just like as a clunky way to tell it. Yeah, I think that's fair. The other option is to just do it as like a straight history yeah, piece. And but that's felt like what it was. Was it not that? No, I don't think this was. I don't. I mean, without having read the source material or any of the uh, like competing I mean, source material. What was material, the timeline jump? Three years? Um, well, we get him as a student, which would have been in the like 19 teens, I believe. And, sure. And then we that get- gets linear. We get the we get the backstory, but like our timelines are. We have Not the, the Manhattan apart. Project, which is happening at, in the middle end of the of the Second World War, and then we have the deposition, which I think is just a few years, eight years later, yeah, maybe at most. Yeah, something like it's like not that. like whoa timeline. It's like right, and then we a have straight the, history movie, the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, before the Senate Committee thing, which is then another decade or so after that, I believe. So. It just didn't feel – it felt very much like a regular history movie to me. Yeah, I mean I think like every other Christopher Nolan movie of consequence, it's a story about subjectivity versus objectivity and what it means to tell a story and who gets to tell the story and what the telling of that story means to the person who's telling it and to the people who are receiving it. This is a guy – who, like his brother, Jonathan Nolan, in the, the Westworld thing, they are fixated on the means and method of of narrative storytelling and, and dissecting it each step along the way. I mean, there's an argument to be made that that is what every single Christopher Nolan movie is about. It is about and the telling women. of a story and shitty women, yes. Um, but, as, you know, specifically... The was the 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 prestige is about that. Uh, Memento is explicitly about that. Inception is a hundred percent about that. All of these all of these movies are about how it is that we tell our stories and and the lens through which we can understand. How can we possibly understand uh, anything objectively uh, given our uh, personal subjective lenses? And that seems to be his fixation. I thought this was a wonderful movie, just sort of as a movie. And it was interesting and challenging and difficult and good in a way that a lot of other movies that are billed for adults aren't necessarily, right? Like, I think this is a fairly mature movie, and it's weird to me that it's made half a billion dollars, right? Like, my (laughs) suspicion going in was like how can they how how is he gonna pull this off like i know nolan movies make a ton of money except for tenant which is super fucking weird plus the pandemic well, thing was, was going COVID. on it was the pandemic that hurt hurt it right it wasn't but I think, in theaters i'm not sure that tenant even in the best case scenario oh, would have had the legs that that something like this did or or some of the other oh, more- it totally would have i don't know tenant's fucking super weird yeah uh, but you you see it anyway yeah, sure. But I'm impressed that, that there's an audience for this sort of thing. and, and The audience s- of boomers. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it felt like when we saw it at the at the shitty Regal, the, the fake IMAX Regal that we went to to see this movie, it was actually a fairly young crowd, and it didn't feel I like didn't it was. I didn't feel that you know, way. I felt very much like we were I, – I felt young there, which I don't feel most of the time. If the uh, success of Oppenheimer at the box office was just like – the first weekend, then you can maybe say it was right in the coattails of the Barbenheimer goofy thing. 
but like it's still doing well separate from that. It's not like people are watching those two things together anymore, right? So it, right. And yeah, I think it's a Nolan thing. He's just like a known brand, and like the summer was kind of like very weak when it comes to movies. There were a lot of just movies that just did not perform well, and so maybe people were like, oh, Nolan, known quantity, let's go watch that. Like among all the available. Yeah, I think part of my appreciation for this movie is how much so many of these other movies that I've seen just fucking yeah. suck. Or the fact that I just have, like, even when I have an interest in seeing one of the movies, I see it and it's just, ah, it was fine. But, like, who fucking cares, ultimately? Yeah. And this one is like, yeah, I can see myself revisiting this many times. Yeah, and but I felt that about this movie. It was fine, but so? Yeah, okay. I mean, that's fair. That's fine. This, this is uh, not my kind of movie. It's a history movie. I would rather have watched a documentary about all of that well and 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 to take sort of the nolan tack here uh i think that watching a documentary about it would be equally as problematic from a how much of the real history are we going to get from this thing that we're engaging with and i'm sure but they're because even a documentary a little... has a point of view and this has a point of view and it's yeah. trying to say something and i don't think I'm not that saying what it's... i need an unbiased i just view. i just disagree that the smart thing to take away from this movie is a better understanding of the actual history of the man uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, and rather to engage with it as a piece of art, and and wonder about uh, what it might be saying otherwise, besides about this one particular dude. What did you make of the like? You know, on one hand, like there are all these these men that are trying to do these big things, but they're also like these very petty men too, where they get like just perceived slights that they harbor these resentments and they try to undermine each other career wise because of misunderstandings. Right. We've talked about. Where I have talked about anyway, Amadeus being one of my favorite movies of all time yeah. before, and I can't remember whether or not you've seen it. Which one is that? It's the one Mozart. about Mozart and F. Murray Abraham plays Salieri, uh, like the jealous, uh, not quite as good composer. I think it's uh, one of those movies that I said that I would watch, but I don't think I have. Right. You Again, as I'm sure I've said on this very show many times before, you need to go watch Amadeus. I'm going to write it down but, the same place I wrote it down last time. Oh. <laughs> this is, uh, in a funny sort of way, this is a remake of Amadeus because uh, the the character uh, portrayed by Robert Downey Jr., who no doubt will get a, an Oscar nod for his performance here, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, Lewis somebody. Strauss or Strauss? Or yes, Strauss. Uh, no, Strauss. I think there was a conversation about the very beginning of the movie. The pronunciation he of the says name. it Strauss, trying to make and it... Oppenheimer continues to pronounce it Strauss. Was that like a, he's trying to make it sound less It's a Jewish, Jewish thing. Okay. Yeah. I thought that Oppenheimer called him out for wanting to sound less Jewish. No, I thought opposite. that was the point of that entire exchange. Yes, a hundred percent. That's what that was. It, it, by, but Strauss is how it would be by refusing to say it his way. You mean like him just constantly re- saying it the other way was the pushback? I thought right? it was Strauss that he was trying to sound less. He didn't want. He wanted to sound more anglicized yeah. rather than Germanic, yeah. and therefore also slightly less Jewy. And so he called himself Strauss. Like that was the whole point yeah. of that guy, of that character. Yeah. But. Whatever, maybe I'm maybe I completely have it backwards. He's basically the Salieri character. Like he is, like never like, and and it's similar 
to what you're saying here about like in the presence of I mean let's avoid maybe some of the great man of history sort of stuff but in the presence of like uh absolute brilliance like we've got Einstein here looking at ducks on a pond and this asshole is walking up to him worried about what he might have been saying about him in the moments before like dude uh, there are more important things at stake than your petty personal politics, and this is a lesson that the Robert Downey Jr. character never fucking learns, right? right? Like, it's all that ever fucking matters to him, and that uh, reminded me a great deal of the dynamic between Mozart and and Salieri in Amadeus. Also, I thought that there is a moment that brings that dynamic home in a way that was too much. And this happens in Christopher Nolan movies fairly consistently, not all the time, but, but I always feel like he, he insists on putting, and maybe it's not him, maybe, or maybe it's a learned behavior based on having gotten uh, note after note after note from uh, uh, studio idiots who are like, no, you have to explain this or you have to do a quick three second flashback to the thing that you're explaining now so that the audience doesn't forget. So that we, like, we got to keep them engaged and we don't want to lose them. So when they get to the very end and they have to have uh, the Han Solo guy, who's it's like Aiden Ehrenlich or something, uh, and it took me forever to place him, but he, he plays Robert Downey Jr.'s aide in the movie, the guy who's like Sherpa-ing him around for the Senate hearing. Right. He's like, man, that guy is good and I like him and he looks familiar, but I don't know why. And then I finally figured out he played Han Solo in the, in the solo movie on, uh, from the Disney oh. people. So, uh, whatever, uh, at the end of the movie, when it is finally revealed that the conversation that Oppenheimer and Einstein were having at the duck pond was about how Oppenheimer is concerned that, yeah, we did the bomb and we were worried that we were going to vaporize every atom on Earth and destroy the entire world. Uh, but uh, And it didn't happen and that's good. Uh, but I'm worried that functionally that is what we did anyway, that we destroyed the world. Even though the, the bomb itself didn't destroy the world in that moment, that functionally we unleashed a, a, a power and a terror so vast and great that – uh, the world will ultimately be destroyed by it. And that was why Einstein was stricken in that moment as he walks by. It had nothing to do whatsoever with Robert Downey Jr. Right. And Robert Downey Jr. has been obsessed with this moment, um, along with one other uh, public semi-humiliation, uh, and, and, and fixated on, on Oppenheimer because of it, because he believes that he was slighted in that moment, like a, a stupid personal yeah. slight in some way, uh, harmed him, and he's been upset about it uh, for 20 years or what have you. And it wasn't about him, right? And we get the reveal that it wasn't about him. Right. But then we have to cut back to 1963 or whatever the timeline is, the very end of yeah. the timeline in this in this movie. LBJ and the Han the thing, right? The the Han Solo guy has to turn around and be like, uh, "You're so vain. You probably think thought that song oh, was about yeah. you, bro, but it wasn't about you at all because they were they were t it, they probably didn't even think about you because you're just a tiny little man. You know you don't matter at all, like." We don't need that line. Like the whole point was was well explained. We don't need the the rubber mallet over our head to drive the point home one more time. And that 
that sort of thing drives me crazy. And it's it's come up in his movies before. I can't remember off the top Batman. of the head. But in Batman, there's always in, in in at least two of the three Batman movies, there's always and part of it is just the nature of superhero supervillain movies. Yeah, it works where it's in like, a superhero. Uh, I have to turn. I have to now give my big villain speech, and it's all about like turning the hero's words back on yeah. him or something like that, right? Um, but like at the end of of Dark Knight, the only Part of it that bothers me is the voiceover at the end when Christian Bale as Batman has to say, like, I have to become – he repeats the line about dying as a hero or or living to find yourself become a, a villain. And it's like I don't need that line repeated in that way. I know it's nice to tie up loose ends and screenplays and you want to you wanna get the, the – drive really drive the point home. But in, uh, in an important way, if you're not just doing it, and you have to tell me about it, then you didn't actually do it. And he's a good enough filmmaker where I know that he is doing it, and I'm getting the message, and it bothers me that they're worried about the idiots in the audience who might not be getting the message that they have to drive it home again. You know, I do wonder if uh, it is indeed like a studio note because, like, one of the problems with uh, Tenet, you know, the pandemic being one reason why it didn't do as well at the box office, but another reason is like it was a little more confusing than the other movies that he did, and that had like less hand-holding scenes like this where like they drive the point home, and I do wonder if they're telling them like if somebody's paying attention like 95% of the time or greater, you don't need that sort of scene. But let's gear our, our movie towards 85% and up, and not 95 Basically like one or two scenes I think Tenet had too much explaining in a weird way. I think Tenet would have been much better off with none of the hand-holding scenes. And you're just like, wait, what the fuck is happening? Like, okay, like, let's not bring logic to this party at all. Because, like, there's no—if you try to introduce 40% logic— She literally says don't try to understand it. Is that Tenet or is that the dream one? That's Tenet. Is that Inception? Okay. Yeah, right. It's best not to try to understand it. I I still— think they could have done with a little bit less hand holding there the, too. the issue with, uh, with tenant is that th- there was a lot of there was a lot of those scenes but like it almost seemed like it was not reliable inf- like it, it didn't clarify or like with this example oppenheimer like this question was clearly like open and I, maybe the guy was saying something about the strauss guy or maybe he wasn't so they resolved that open question like with tenant there wasn't like, right but i thought all along it was super obvious that this guy was just a petty, stupid fucking politician who is uh, like a str- your classic political striver. And you, and he's looking at two of the smartest people in the history of the species, that uh, in, the, in the recorded history of the species anyway, in J. Robert Oppenheimer and, and Albert Einstein, and saying, you know what, I think they were talking about – they were talking about me. Like, no, you asshole. Right. They were never – and this, that was an ambiguous to me as a viewer of the film from the beginning beginning and yeah sure do you have the moment where you finally do the reveal and you show what the conversation was about fine but like to then take it to that next level where you're fully banging the hammer on the audience's head uh felt it always feels like a bit much they, to me. they say uh diagnosing people uh is not responsible to do it in this way but like that that reads like narcissist right where you're you just can't conceptualize that two people are talking about something that has nothing to do with you. It's like, oh, look at them. They're... That's literal textbook yeah, narcissism. Like... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it must be about me. There's a thing called covert narcissism because, like, we think of narcissists as being, like, 
self-assured and, you know, yeah. like Trumpy. Yeah. But there is another kind of narcissist who is always down on themselves outwardly. And it's like, because you can't imagine that this isn't about yeah. you. Yeah. Like, nobody gives a shit about you. Right. I have the opposite. I'm always shocked to find out that somebody else was thinking about me in any way. <laughs> like, I, I is... I don't know. I'm not saying no that as is. a means of saying, like, I'm definitely not a narcissist. Yeah, although, like, I, I don't know. I'm I, sure. was, I mean, I'm like that, too. But I think that's the the, the most people that's are like that. normal. Or, right? I mean, yeah. Most people are totally oblivious right. of everything. Yeah. But, yeah, besides that sort of ham-fisted moment at the end of the movie, I thought it was very well done. I, again, still think that there's a weird thing going on with him and dark-haired women. Uh, like, I don't – I want to uh, know – Dark-haired is how you would describe his women. Is that is that wrong? It's scratching the surface of his women. Suicidal, miserable, life-ruining, dark-haired women. Yeah. So was uh... – was she like killed or was she just drowned her? Because I think it's kind of hard to drown yourself in that way, right? It's hard, but when you when you're yeah, that you miserable, take a bunch of fucking barbiturates and slice your wrists open. You, you die in a bathtub, right? But wasn't she like not only doing that? Like she was she like drowned herself, drowning is herself what in showed. a weird angle, and there was like some hand that maybe somebody else was drowning her. I don't know. Does seem kind of there easier ways to kill yourself. Not that I'm encouraging it. But. Yeah, but she's a woman, so <laughs> yes. she's stupid. I don't think it's fair to say that these women are stupid. It's just that they are perhaps in the Nolan conception uh, driven a little bit more by emotion and their uh, and their personal psychology than the, the cold calculus of the intellect as his male protagonists and, often are. And at least in this example, like he was kind of bound by what happened because she – like there was this relationship. She actually does die, although it seems like maybe she didn't kill herself. Maybe something else happened, but like, so there wasn't, you couldn't write a happy story about her, right? She would have to be eventually miserable, and she wasn't married to him. So I don't know if there was another option that he had. Right. Well, but, and the the fact that the the wife is similarly the wife was a disaster. disastrous as yeah, well. I, I have Jesus no defense Christ. for that. <laughs> I mean, the. The just being absolutely wasted and and the baby screaming upstairs and well, just she stuck the landing though when the time came she's like uh like a good field goal kicker she stuck it at the end yeah I'm going to briefly interrupt our conversation here to interject something that I meant to bring up last night but uh, in classic bad podcasting notes fashion I failed to. Uh, do so in the context of the conversation. So now Abe and Lori can't respond to it. Uh, they have my apologies. But watching the like one of the one of the themes, the major themes of the movie is uh, the compartmentalization versus uh, working together. Right. So uh, Matt Damon's character, who we didn't talk about, uh, the, the general, he is trying to keep everything sort of segmented and compartmentalized so that the left hand doesn't necessarily know what the right hand is doing. And Oppenheimer's job is to bring as many people together as possible to move towards one goal. And in order to accomplish this one massive and incredibly difficult goal that they're trying to accomplish, you need to get rid of all of the compartmentalization. You need to allow everyone to work together to uh, get the job done, similar to how after uh, 9-11, the uh, Department of Homeland Security was invented, created in order to 
avoid the sort of compartmentalization that allowed 19 terrorists to come into this country and go to flight school and learn how to uh, fly planes but not necessarily land them and then uh, carry out a, a terror attack that uh, you know resulted in the last 25 years of our history. And it was interesting to me to see this idea of coming together and working towards a goal and then uh, like, like realizing what humanity is capable of and not necessarily in the best way. Uh, and it, it struck me as a sort of uh, a, both a celebration of humanity's ability to come together and create something uh, out of nothing just by virtue of our ability to cooperate and work together, but also the sort of horror of what we are capable of when we come together with a common goal. And it, I, I was reminded of like cliched, like wall art where it says uh, we're better together and that sort of thing. And the, the more we work together, the, the, the better we'll do. I was reminded of like, say Barney, the big purple dinosaur. And like th they would sing songs about uh, cooperation and doing things together. And then if you were to create like a trailer or a, or a, uh, the moral message of the movie, you would have Barney sitting there singing his happy song, uh, talking about working together. And then slowly the, the words get more drawn out and the horror movie flashes start coming in and Barney's fucking big purple dinosaur skin starts melting off of him because, in fact, the more we work together, uh, the better nuclear bombs will build and the, the greater the horror will be. Everything's more fun when we all work together. <laughs> no, this is the more fun when we all work together. The more we work together, the happier we'll be. was my thought about uh, the, one of the bigger themes of this movie that I failed to include in our fucking hour-long discussion of it, but I wanted to make sure I got it in here now because I don't think it'll come up again in the future. And then you know, back, back to the rest of the show. What else did I want to say about this movie? There was some uh, furor, my, a mild furor in the culture about the decision... Nolan's decision not to show the impact of the bomb on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and therefore also not to show mass Japanese death, uh, not to show the results of this, uh, of this work. Uh, do you think that that is a failing of the film to not show the dead Japanese and does it somehow detract from any of the moral messaging that might uh, underlie the movie? And would it, like for me anyway, before I finish this very leading question, 
it was it would feel cheap to me to show a bunch of vaporized Japanese folks or, or, or skin melting off a bunch of Japanese folks. And I don't know. It, it would feel, it would feel grossly exploitative in a way that this movie didn't feel particularly exploitative. I sort of understand the instinct to be like, how can you talk about the creation of this bomb and, and the great man theory of history that sort of undergirds this sort of project and not, show the actual devastation that he wrought and i just i don't know that it could have been anything but grossly exploitative had they shown it right i i I do kind of land i I was kind of surprised that people made that point maybe they were kind of gearing up to make that point regardless but like it all depends on how you're telling the story the 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 way that uh nolan went was like a point of view experience from the eyes vantage point of oppenheimer right so it would have like you, you say, like it would be a gratuitous scene to show the bomb dropping on those two cities because that's not where Oppenheimer is, right? Because everything is through the lens of him and the, the people in his orbit, right? And like even when the word came out that the president decided to use it, it was done in the way that he would have experienced it, like newspapers or through word of mouth. It wasn't like we weren't in the TV era, or at least not like right. He turned on he turned on the radio right. when a when everyone got word that something was happening and listened to the president announce it and and bring the news of it to the world at the same time as everybody else listened right. to which it would for be, the first which, time. Which would yeah. be in line with how in real life he would have come about knowing this, unless they give him a heads up. I don't know why they would do that, but like to me, how would it work? Like so, all of this, you know, they they do the the final test, everything gets the green light, and then. They cut to some kids playing like soccer, and boom! Like it wouldn't make sense right. to to show to show it in that regard. Maybe at the end, like oh, by the way, this fucking guy who has all these misgivings killed a fuck ton of people. Look at them all die, right? I mean, maybe at the very end, but you couldn't do that in the in the narrative, right? Yeah, I agree. And I again, I just don't know what it, I don't think it would have added anything. If you can't be emotionally devastated by what you're seeing on the screen based on what Nolan uh put up there, I think that's a failure of yours. And it is it's like to me it's like fucking it's fucking weird to demand that you watch a bunch of Japanese people be vaporized. Right. Like that's that fucked up, weird, man. But you know, maybe that's you know, people are into, you know, hey, the man that built the bomb that went boom. Let me see it, right? Like, if you're but, one of those people. Like, for, for empathy reasons, you need to see a bunch of vaporized Japanese <laughs> or people with uh, radiation sickness yeah. with their skin sloughing right. off them. Like, that, I don't think that holds. And you should probably reexamine the premise of your criticism there, right. man. I, that's why I think the, the criticism was basically locked and ready to go, regardless of the shape of the story. Because you could make an argument for that depending on how the story was told, right? Like, if it was like a bigger view kind of right. thing but like that's not what happened you know there was the uh the rah 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 speech that he gave where like you know it would kind of go silent and like i think they showed like some like his imagination of like like there was a, a scene where a woman's or her like skin was coming apart because of the effects right. of the bomb like i think that was like maybe his attempt of like you know i can at least present it this way because you can imagine like somebody imagining the worst in his head right and that, that's what they did. And, of course, the criticism there was that, oh, well, it happens to a white woman. It's like, well, wait, that is not a response. <laughs> that is not a – yes, that is who was in the again, room when Oppenheimer yeah. was experiencing the vision. That is a weird – like it, and, Yeah, and again, it tracks people. with, like, 
this him he's kind of reconciling with his role in this, his major role in this, and how this is not going to end with the America's use of the bomb. Like it's going to begin this chain reaction, and soon it will be right. hitting people that he does know, people in the United States. So like it kind of works in that way. But it just seems like people, you know, like those two arguments are easy. That you know they're just kind of there for somebody to make it. But it didn't really track with the story that was being told here. I think he made the right choices there. Yeah. Um, and then there's the further criticism of this as cementing uh, a history or a, a narrative about our history into people's minds that doesn't do justice to the arguments against dropping the bomb and that people are upset at Nolan for failing to level cogent and rational arguments against the use of the bomb in a way that would have been more persuasive and therefore uh it it lets oppenheimer off the hook because he's not being like like the real arguments against dropping the bomb aren't given uh uh full shrift that that somehow and and fa- and that somehow failing to uh present those arguments in their as, as the the steel man version of those arguments uh lets Oppenheimer and by extension America off the hook for its uh, moral crimes here. I guess I could, and I think, I think it's uh, my response to that. In short, is it's very silly to demand that a movie right. uh, do that for you. If, if that is your concern, uh, you should you should consider looking elsewhere or making those arguments yourself. Certainly, right. but and, and sometimes it's okay to just tell a, a specific story in in the way that the person who's telling it. Says it because, you know. Okay, so in in some respects, that that would be a valid criticism. Like, you're, like this guy's just fucking whining because you know his name is gonna be associated with his bomb. But like, this bomb impacted so many other people, and there should be some sort of recognition of that somehow in the story. Although I don't know how that would take shape. Like, I mean, what would there would just be like some this weird scene that somebody like says something critical like i don't know like it just wouldn't it, it wouldn't read like organic with the rest of the story like it was a very specific right. story that they were trying to tell kind of like th- there was some criticism of like the sound of fury movie where in that in a story it was like a very one of these like unlikely scenarios where kids are kidnapped in a very like ridiculous way where like this woman comes and like schemes the parent out of the two kids and they kid you know they put them through this traffic and uh, organization most cases it doesn't happen like that it's like very like you know sometimes parents are unfortunately are involved it's a little more a little more complicated and people were criticizing the movie for just talking about these rare incidences and not talk about the the bread and butter of like trafficking children and it's like that's not what this story was trying to tell like i mean they're, they're, they had like a specific story they told that story well, right. you know what's not you know what's not an interesting story? The ninety seven percent of so called kidnapped or trafficked kids who were just picked up from school by the non custodial parents right. and taken across state lines. Right. Like that that is not like yeah, maybe there's an interesting family drama to tell there, but that's very mundane unless you get into the very specifics of that uh, one particular family that largely won't be interesting because they're just trashy people. Uh, right. <laughs> sorry, that's that's what most of these stories are uh, about the, the kidnapped kids. 
uh, way more interesting story is the ones who get actually picked up by some weird child smuggling cartel and brought to Mexico or right. whatever, right? Like that's yeah, a that's, way more interesting right. story. And yeah, that's because humans are attract. We are attracted to the outlier uh, stories, right? right? Like it's just more that, interesting. That is that true. Way. Yeah, because we are basically like prisoners of like very narrow types of stories. Like we're just like captivated by those, and like anything that doesn't fit that. That's why sometimes like a movie that will be based on real life like that. Captain Sully thing. There was no real movie there. Like fucking stupid Canadian birds. I'm not saying Canada had anything to do with it, but there were Canadian birds that came and they attacked both of the engines. And uh, you're talking about Canada geese. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, Canadian geese of some sort. And again, (laughs) the engines both fail. Unlikely scenario, but it happens. I guess the guy kind of sizes his op, you know, looks at his options, like, I can't make it to that airport. Oh, look at this, all this water. Perhaps I can do this landing. He does it. Everybody's happy. Uh, but in the movie, the, it, you have to have some tension and conflict. And so they just made up stuff, like where, like, the National Transportation Safety Board takes, like, an adversarial, like, oh, you could have done this thing better. Like, creating drama where it doesn't exist because... We need to see that in a story. Like, if it's just like, right. look at Tom Hanks. Isn't he yeah, great Apollo for 90 13. minutes? Yeah. Apollo 13 with the marriage right. strife. Yes, you have to be. Like, yeah. her ring falls down the drain. Like, it's not exciting enough that there's people trapped in a spaceship. <laughs> we need marital strife, too. Yeah, if you tell me, if next you're going to tell me that the square peg into a round hole thing for the air filter was a, uh, they made that up for the movie, and my entire life will be shattered. I've been, I've been living. No, that's real. That better be fucking real. The square peg round hole issue. But yeah, so like you have to tell the story a certain way, or else people won't. And like it. the, the conflict of like the guy, Kevin Bacon. Not being qualified, oh, and right. then thinking like, "Oh, he's not qualified." Like they didn't care. Yeah. Every everybody is just as qualified that's as right. everyone else. <laughs> also, real quick on that argument about like whether or not, and I this is a this is a sort of constant bugaboo of mine. But people who say things like, uh, "I'm absolutely certain that America should not have dropped the bomb; that it was the wrong thing to do," and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Like it's such an easy stance to take, right? Like 150 some odd thousand Japanese are killed seemingly unnecessarily because there's an argument that if the U.S. convinces Russia to declare war on the Empire of Japan, which they had uh, yet to do at that point, that Japan would have folded. And there's a, a semi-compelling counter-argument to that, which is that J- the Japanese never fucking quit. And it's, n- it's not clear uh, that they were going to. Why can't it be just what it is? Which is like, you know, it, it's a fucked up thing to drop that bomb on a population, a, city, a populous city, but it was a fucked up thing that ended the war. And, like, I do wonder if the people... Uh, that lived during that time and they had these concerns like, well, you can't unring this bell, right? Basically, kind of like the Oppenheimer guy, like, oh, shit, this is going to start a chain reaction. Won't be long before the Russians get it, despite what Truman thought. Uh, won't be long before other c- countries in the future get it. And then you're going to have right. the, this problem. Has turns out worked out pretty well. Like, no one's really used it, right? We are... Right. And so that's like... 
And not to, you know, knock on wood, I suppose, as far as the nobody's nobody's really used it yet. But we're certainly not that. We're we're living in a time, still living in a time, where there are these enormous weapons, and not all of them are as uh, as as secured as you would expect them to be, right? Especially given the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and the concerns about. Uh, how many of those weapons are, have been properly uh, taken care of in the time since, not to mention the fact that the United States and, and Russia just continue to make these things uh, year after year. And you have countries that are like, they could destabilize, like Pakistan, and they have it, so like some non-state actor could get their hands on this at some point, right? Right. It could be very, very bad, and who knows, uh, but to some extent, and this is my argument sort of about the American century writ large like for everything you can say about fucking awful hegemonic american power over the last uh 75 years or whatever the correct time frame is you can say a lot for this sort yeah you can say a lot it's bad news uh this russia v ukraine is the first meaningful uh european land war in you know since World War II, basically, right? I mean, they're skirmishes, I suppose, right. uh, through the years. But like having the big bad in in America and and this power, and and we displayed and deployed that power in unimaginably inhumane ways at the end of World War II, uh, with the rationale or the justification being that uh, perhaps it will save American lives to not have to go invade uh, Japan to force them to surrender. Uh, but ultimately, like, as someone who I, – I don't believe that we're in the most perfect world, but I certainly do believe that uh, it could be a whole hell of a lot worse, right? And, and there's there's just no way of knowing what failing to use those bombs in that scenario would have changed about human history over the course of the last 75 years. And – that doesn't absolve whatever sin is on uh, Harry Truman or, or Oppenheimer himself for the decision to make and then drop those bombs. Uh, th- those sins don't wash away just because I made that statement, right? right? I'm, not, I'm not morally absolving them of their culpability here in any way by suggesting that, uh, for all we know, shit could have been a whole lot worse. Uh, I think that's just true. Like, we just don't know what would have happened right. otherwise. right. And, but but the one thing I, I, again going back to the point like to think that eighty years later there was no sec like there was no other time where somebody like will end the war because of similar arguments that Americans would make like oh we would have killed more people on both ends if it was like having to go into the country and, and fight it out for like another like year or two right so it's like the casualties would have been worse the other way but like there's something about and I don't know, is it like a rational thing to say, like, you can kill people in other ways, but you can't kill people in specific ways, right? Like, Dresden, a lot of people died there, right? That wasn't fun, right, for anybody. Uh, and But it was done in a certain way. But if somebody dropped a bomb on Dresden, that would have been different. Like, would that have – would like, there's something about, like, why it does this way of death, like – change a calculation like i mean you're, this is war million people have died it was, i think it's just because there's so many innocent people right. just i guess that's true yeah you know yeah that's i think the biggest right it's hard to imagine bombs of this size and the size that they built 
in the aftermath, like in the in the at the dawn of the Cold War, with the H bomb coming into be, becoming the main uh, weapon of the Soviets and the United States. After that point, like those are not at least with the Dresden bombing. Each one of those individual bombs, you could say, could be pointed at a specific military target right. of consequence. And that doesn't mean that they were in Dresden, right? It's a largely non-military target there. But uh, there's no, in the same way that when we talk about the gun, like the perp- the reason the gun and the bullet exist and go together is because you want to take it and fire it at another human right. being and then they die, right? Like that's the purpose of the thing. The purpose of a hydrogen bomb is not to take out a specific military target for a specific military reason. It's you want to have the biggest possible bomb to kill as many human beings mass, as possible. Mass destruction. Yeah. Uh, just. Right. And so that that's probably uh, an important part of the difference. Boy, uh, good thing uh, the, that guy who's making decisions, I don't know if he was a secretary of something, but like, oh, me and my wife – honeymoon in this town like Kyoto let's not bomb them like imagine surviving making the cut because somebody went on vacation there once that is a perfect (laughs) another perfect moment in that movie is that is that scene I thought that was very well done (laughs) like those uh, moments like it stood out to her like this must have actually happened because it's just such a random thing to include in a movie just like Truman talking shit about uh, what's his face like oh this guy's a fucking wimp get get him out of my office like right I think I I think that moment is born out of a line in that guy's memoir or his his autobiography or something and not recorded from a one particular conversation but I'm I'm pretty sure that the guy who says that in the movie that comes from somebody's memoir right but that's yeah that, that's uh, what I'm saying like yeah. it, th- th- those two scenes in particular did not sound like artistic license because it just would have like if we right. just made it up like what <laughs> like it's way it's way too crass yeah. to be anything but real right. life yeah i forget why i ended up looking this up but do you and i'm i'm sure it had to do with something that i was reading about some criticism about the movie um but i looked up the racial and ethnic demographics of the united states uh through history mm-hmm. And I was like, and I know that it's it, it's weird to be surprised by these sorts of things, I suppose. But the United States today, or the twenty twenty census, is sixty one and a half percent white, right? Okay, that's the United States today. That is the 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 United States that is having an ongoing conversation about race right. that is a white supremacist uh, patriarchal awful hegemony of of uh, people who look like me uh <laughs> doing awful things to all of the minorities that's a that's a country that is 61.6% white in the 1940s when this was all taking place the United States do you know the answer to this? What I'm about to say, or should I phrase this as an over/under? I'm going to take, you take a the guess. Over sixty-one percent. Lock it in. Yes, it is over sixty-one. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I, I want you to just take a stab at so, it. So you know, so the uh, the state of Georgia went from like seventy plus percent white in like nine, around the time we were born in the early '80s to like fifty percent, like right now. So like it dropped like twenty plus points, right? So I wonder if there's right. a similar drop. I'm going to say we're talking about like early 40s, like during this. Oh yeah. God. Mm, 70, 
6% white. The answer is over 76%. It is 89.8% white <laughs> in 1940. All right. This country was so fucking white so recently. Right. Like, in, when my parents, my parents are of the 1960s, 1960 census, 88.6% white in 1960. When we're born, the early 1980s, 83.1% white, and now 61.6% white. There's that old line about how uh, the generals are always fighting the last war, right? Like we're always, the reason that you lose this war is that you're uh, fighting the, you're, you're using the lessons of the last war to fight this war and this is a new war, so you're fucked, right? right? This entire convulsion that, that we're going through is going to be, and I know that uh, uh, people like me or who look like me who are much more awful than me, I guess, uh, who are dismissive of all of these uh, concerns about racism and whatnot, would perhaps make a similar sort of argument to what I'm about to say here. And I, yeah, what are you yeah. going to do? But our concerns in this moment are going to be so utterly mystifying to people of 2060, right? right. Like if you just follow the trend line, uh, <laughs> just since our parents were born, we've gone from roughly 90% white to 60% white. That is a, and and by the way, that is a that is a a massive change just in terms of if everything, right? So it is the case that that white hegemony was a thing that you could be critical of when you're looking back at the 1950s. But it, it's becoming increasingly ridiculous to make any of these sorts of arguments now. And it and you need look almost no further than just the raw demographic numbers to know it. And, and, and yeah, are there problems with who's in charge and who, where the money is and all of the rest of that? Yes, for now. Uh, but guess what? That's also going to be sorted, right? right? As if there's one thing that this country is actually pretty good at, it is uh, uh, the great resort of, of having capital and, and uh, uh, resources accrue at the people who are able to produce. Like it's just sort of – I'm confused about the point you're trying to make. In what way? What it what just like say it uh, with less words. That uh, in 2010 the United States was 72 percent white. In yeah. 2020 it's 61 percent white. When we were born it was 83 percent white. When my parents were born okay, it was no, 90 percent white. When their parents were born it was even more closer to You're 90 percent white. Saying it with white. as many words. What is the like? I understand the statistics. What are you saying about we it? We are a culture. Fully obsessed with questions of race and ethnicity, and in thirty or forty years, we won't be. We're going to be looking around, going, "What the fuck were they talking about? Okay, why were they so obsessed so with you're this saying thing?" If we that just was calm down, so obviously getting better right before their eyes, like, like. The, when I said about the generals fighting the last war, we have a whole generation of people 
who were raised to be civil rights warriors whose whose fucking war is past. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but you won, and it's good, and it's going to be even better in 30 years, and it won't be because you uh, got mad at Don McNeil for using, the, for saying, the for pronouncing the bad syllables, right? right? Like, none of the things that you're doing, like, uh, The French Connection is a movie that's uh, in the in the culture a little bit at the moment because the guy who directed it, William Friedkin, uh, died. He's like fucking uh, an old school Hollywood guy. He directed The Exorcist. He directed uh, The French Connection and a, a bunch of other movies, but those are probably his two best movies. And uh, uh, earlier this summer, uh, Disney owns The French Connection or the distribution rights to it or something. And so they sent it out to the Criterion Channel and they aired a version of it where – uh, this morally uh, somewhere between ambiguous and depraved character in the movie uses the N-word. This is a couple of cops talking about uh, 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 criminals, and they use the N-word in reference – like they call them the N-word. They, they use it in the bad right. way, right? There's no getting around it. They use it in the way that is not good. They don't just say it. They use it, and it's bad. But they took that out. They took the word out in order to uh, more uh, comport with today's uh, – cultural mores or sensibilities or whatever and in so doing deprived us of a full picture of who this character is supposed to be and where we can place this film in our cultural history and then it leaves you wondering like okay so but then what's the big deal right and so so but these are the things that this whole generation is so concerned about in this moment that won't make any sense whatsoever to people in fairly short I'm order curious so replaced it with what like did they replace it with another word I forget the dialogue. Okay, they, they they just moved it around a little bit and then changed the they, they removed the word entirely. Like they, I can pull it up. You know, you just give me a uh, what's second. interesting is uh, I was just watching the the jerk with uh, Steve. What's his face? Uh, and there were a couple of references to the N word, and that was still in the HBO wherever I watched it. Like they didn't re- remove that, so I don't know why they're being kind of random about which ones they removed the words out of. It kind of worked pretty well. This is from the New York Times write-up of this from back in July, and I was reminded of it because of uh, William Friedkin's death. Uh, Two narcotics cops, Jimmy Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, and Buddy Russo, played by Roy Scheider, are at the precinct following an undercover operation during which a drug dealer ended up slashing Russo with a knife. The injury has left Russo struggling to put on his coat. Need a little help there? Doyle chuckles, then adds an ethnic jab. You dumb guinea. You dumb guinea. How the hell did I know he had a knife? Never trust a nigger. He could have been white. Never trust anyone. Then he invites Russo out for a drink and they trade masturbation jokes as they head through the door. But perhaps you should forget that I mentioned any of this because you're now a lot less likely to see it in the film. In June, viewers of the Criterion Channel streaming version noticed that much of the scene had been edited out without announcement or comment. People viewing via Apple TV and Amazon found the same. It was reported that the version available on Disney Plus in Britain and Canada remains unedited, suggesting that whoever authorized the cut imagined the moment to be unfit for American audiences in particular. Blah, 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 blah. The domestic market now sees a slapdash sequence that has Russo entering the room, clutching his forearm, followed by a jerky jump to the door where Doyle waits. The disparaging exchange is, of course, omitted. What remains is a glitch, a bit of hesitation, the suggestion of something amiss. Never trust anyone indeed. Hmm. Anyway, uh, we didn't talk about that when it happened because it probably because it felt like I had been 
we'd been talking about that exact same story half a dozen times uh, in relation to other things like the uh, what's his name the giant peach guy. But anyway. so, uh, do you think that because uh, to me I I don't understand this this uh, approach because. I would imagine that you would want to just show the movie as it was, just like you would want to teach history as it happened, right? Like you don't want to to accommodate some present day sensibility, like oh, I don't want to hear about this, or I don't want to hear a word, or I don't want to hear about that thing that happened. Like to me, this sounds like what do you mean? Like just this it, this is the movie. It came out at this time, and yes, the sensibilities are different, but that's how it was then. Like why would you want to? Right, and I've made the true? argument. I've made the argument before about how it removes its relevance as a cultural or historical artifact uh, if you've now, with the modern editing knife, gone in and changed it to reflect today's values. Like you've, you've, I don't need to repeat that. I think that that is clear. Uh, it's just that this is the thing that we focus all of our attention on now, and I think it will be utterly incomprehensible I hope anyway. Right. I guess Although, my hope is that this this all of this concern about all of this bullshit where all we're concerned about is the appearance of a thing and whose feelings are going to be hurt by a thing and 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 like the pretending about feelings that are going to be hurt by a thing. All of it feels like such nonsensical play acting that that it's pretending to be serious about the world in a way that the underlying understanding of it is we know that you're not actually being serious about this, right? Like there, that, that is the thing that, that I think most drives me insane about conversations around political correctness. Because like – so Kamala Harris got into it with Ron DeSantis because there was this thing about how there was a, a line in the Florida history curriculum around slavery. Like the to slavery? Where Right, like out of a, a list of 180 bullet points or something on this particular section talking about American slavery, there was a note in there, which uh, not that it matters, but for the record was inserted by an historian who happens to right. be a, a, an African-American man, a black man, uh, noting that in some cases uh, a house slave, for example, uh, would have had a slightly better life than a, a cotton picking slave and would have learned skills that they were then able to, uh, use in their lives because slavery wasn't this monolithic thing that was just nothing but suffering and death for people. Instead, it was a life. It wasn't a good life, but it was an experience of a full life by full human beings, right? And you know what full human beings are capable of? capable of doing in unimaginably bad circumstances. They're capable of taking uh, something positive from the absolute worst experiences of their lives, right? You can, uh, I mean, it's gross to even think about it, but like, You've heard stories about mothers saying that, uh, yeah, I was raped, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for right. the world because I got my my son or my daughter out of it, right? And is that a rationalization to some extent? But yeah, but it doesn't mean that they're for, they're not absolving their rapist of the of the crime against them in that in that sense, right? Like to some extent, we fucking take the lemons and we make goddamn lemonade out of them. It's what we do. It's why we thrived. We've done it better than any other species in the on the history of the planet. And uh, we'll continue to do so. And to suggest that you cannot take small amounts of good from unimaginably bad circumstances is to tell a lie about the way that uh, the human species has, has maintained through well, the years. Well, you know, I, I guess, yeah, the larger point that humans persevere even in trying times is a, a good one. Like, what is the 
the context that this information is presented because you know you, you point to the, the the rape situation where a baby can come out of that heinous act and just say you know the kid is good or whatever but like i liken this to if saying any upside to slavery to me sounds like a bizarre thing to say because during like let's say the, the second I don't think well, I so I disagree I I, I agree with yeah. you if you're going to frame it as an upside to slavery right. then yes that's wrong but if you make clear this absolutely a, a, at best amoral like it's hard to imagine it. like the, the fact that they're able to frame it in a moral framework and that the Christian religion has managed to do that with slavery because slavery appears in the Bible right yes. so like there is a way that people try to frame slavery as an immoral act but to me it it exists beyond the bounds of normal morality in any uh, conceivable way it is a completely unacceptable thing to do to enslave a fellow human being so yeah when you frame it as the upside to slavery right. is that they learned how to shoe right. a horse and then this this guy got to become a blacksmith <laughs> in his later life out. but again the, what i would compare bringing that point up like in a vacuum yes yes you can learn something uh while you're subjected as a something less than a human that's a point i guess but to me that would be like saying during the like the Japanese assaults on like China and they're doing these experiments and they glean some scientific information from like those fucking injecting things into humans who are under their captivity and they learn a thing. Oh, that's all bad. All of that torture. Like we learned one extra thing. Like to me, it would be like bringing that point up. It's like, okay, but like what context are you presenting this information? Yeah, you can glean information by doing heinous things right and that's fine again like I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable having that conversation i think that is a worthwhile conversation to have is it, it like it requires a very specific context of uh slavery was an absolute moral evil it was it was depravity and completely unacceptable and also uh, this is a story of African-American triumph, ultimately, because despite this, they have persevered and, yeah. and people uh, – you are, you are descended from some of the strongest willed and, and capable human beings to ever walk the face of the and earth, right? By, by nature of, of the, the worst imaginable sort of uh, uh, Darwinism that you right. can even conceive of, but that, right? But everybody uh, too, right? I mean like if you go back – to different periods of time, somebody was getting screwed over, and they persevered. And right, Abs absolutely, yes. We are looking around I think, the humans, I think that, or the cream of the crop. Right, and I, but but and I'm fine with people having the conversation on the other side, which is like even giving uh, any any sort of light to this is completely. I disagree. I, I I just disagree. What I cannot stand is somebody like Kamala Harris getting on stage and being like, "Oh, that that Ron DeSantis wants to tell all the kids that slavery was good." Actually. Actually, right? Uh, that's how depraved Ron DeSantis is. Nobody believes that Kamala Harris believes that that's right. what Ron DeSantis believes, right. right? Like that's the artifice and the and the we're just pretending here. We're pretending towards seriousness when in fact there are other things that we could be concerning ourselves with that actually matter in the world. And none of them have to do with some fucking uh, uh, academic committee in Florida deciding to inject into their curriculum the idea that uh, some black folks learned how to shoe a horse uh, during slavery. Right. Anyway, 
I don't know how we made it there from Oppenheimer, but oh, what are you going to do? Because there were a lot of white people before. Oh, by the way, to that point, so like uh, just a little uh, context, like in the 60s, like LBJ, after What's-His-Face died, uh, he passed a lot of things like, you know, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, all that stuff. One of the things he passed was an yeah. Immigration Act. And apparently before then, they had restrictive quotas depending on where you came from. So not everybody came to Ellis Island from all over the world, right? They were like, you know, in Asia, like, oh, fuck that. You're not coming here. Africa, you're right, not coming. The, the Chinese right. Restriction Act or right, something like, like that, Right, the Exclusion Act and all that stuff. So, like, the Immigration Exclusion Act in 65 got rid of all of those things. And so that's why the numbers went the other way. And so, yeah, you're right. The, the good news is you're right. Like, in, like, 30, 40 years from now, this current way of thinking about things uh, will not make a lot of sense. Uh, the only problem will be we'll be arguing about something else. Like, it's not like things will just be better. Like, there seems to be this need to have these arguments about things. And so, like, we'll just be arguing about some other thing. So it's not like it'll be like, come by in 30 years. It'll just What are we going to do when the white, when we lose the boogeyman that is the hegemonic white male, like, which you still see constantly in, in, uh, in media is portrayed as like the worst thing in the world, the white supremacy, the, the, the white male. There was a piece in the times a couple of weeks ago, uh, this Asian lady moved to France during the pandemic. And, uh, she's talking about how good it feels to finally be in a country where she feels like a white male. Like what, what the fuck is wrong with you lady? What are you talking about? Uh, but like, what are we going to do when we lose well, that as the, so, as the cultural boogeyman so, or will we never, will we always, will we continue to uphold him as the ultimate, uh, powerful evil, uh, that we're all constantly striving against, even as as whiteness, however, whatever that means to people, this isn't my fucking language, people, but it, it slips below 50% and then probably settles around, I don't know, 30 or 40% of America will be considered uh, non-Hispanic whites uh, by the time I'm dead, something along right, those lines. Right, but I suspect that, uh, you know, yes, uh, hate thrives on, like, hardware, like, you know, you look different than I look, right? But it also thrives on software. Like you believe this thing that I don't believe in, right? I mean, there, there's been a lot of hate between people who are – they're all like, you know, those English and Irish. I mean, to me, they, what's the difference, right? But they hated each other because they believed Jesus slightly differently, right? Right. So it's like – Well, you look at that, – that, That's not going to change. So I, you Google up the most uh, diverse countries in the world and you end up with Liberia, right? Now, you, uh, top of your head, you're like, wait, Liberia? Liberia? What do you mean most oh. diverse? Uh but it's because 95% of their population is made up of something like 17 or 18 different right. tribes, right? So they, these are cons considered ethnically and racially diverse people based on the fact that they are of different tribes and they speak different languages. And yes, that's all well and good and true. Uh, but is that a bet? Like, is that is that the sort of inherent diversity that we think is an inherent good in any plausible right. way? Like, and 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 uh, further, so you would. A, a, a weird thought that I had was that like going to Liberia and saying there's a black guy and, and saying that that's his race 
is as dumb as going to the United States and saying there's a white guy and saying that tells me everything I need to know about his racial and ethnic makeup. It's as absurd, right? It, the, the, the kid who grows up in Boston versus right. the kid who grows up on the potato farm in Idaho versus the kid who grows up in rural Mississippi, those are, those are as meaningfully right. different cultures right. in, in ways that matter to those three people as the three different tribes in Liberia are. Right. And I, I and maybe I'm completely but, wrong but, about that. And to an extent, we have like a national media and a more nationalized culture. But I think in, in the ways that the, those people, ex, their experience of the world, I, I, I'm not sure that that's a, an entirely bad thought. But, the, by but me. the thing is, you know, no matter what, like, you know, hate finds a way. Right. So like if it's not along, like I said, racial lines, I mean, you, you, you currently are seeing this trend towards political ideology being the black versus white. Right. So like. There, there are shorthand indicators that you're on this side or on that side. If you have a decal, that I mean, obviously that's not, that's pretty obvious. If you have like a mega decal versus some, I don't know, whatever uh, thing is popular these days on the other side. But like, there are also like where people are living, what people are driving, what people are watching. It's like a two different world, right? And so like, the animus can be on that front instead of like what it used to be, which is around racial lines, right? So like. There's going to be some conflict. It'll just be around political ideology versus like tribes, like in other parts of the world, right? Well, it's rural, urban. Yeah, it's just two right. things. Yeah, it's the NPR class versus everybody right. else. I think is ultimately where we're headed. Um, all right, I want to play a clip from a John Ronson book. The John Ronson book is this th- is the last thing we're doing. Them because it's late. It's not that late. It's going to be when you get done talking. No, this is along the same lines as the conversation we've been having. Uh, And it's the last part of it. Have you... (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. Have you ever read Them by John Ronson? I don't know. I think I have the book. It was was his, uh, like, Adventures with uh, Extremists. Okay. And he's going around... And and by the way, uh, first off, Everyone should go listen to you can you get on Audible on on Amazon or or just buy the book. Um, in a weird way, his going around the world and talking to different extremist uh, groups and the leaders of these extremist movements very much speaks to this moment. And this was a book that came out uh, some twenty five years ago, I believe. But uh, here's a quick clip from that that I found uh, particularly revelatory about uh, today. I was surprised to hear from Jack that the first thing Randy Weaver yelled through the cabin walls at him, the very first thing he yelled to the outside world, having been under siege for a week, was not, they killed Vicky, they killed my bride. That was the second thing he yelled. It was not, I've been shot too. That was the third thing he yelled. The first thing he yelled was, why is the radio calling me a white supremacist when those are not my views? All right. So this is about uh, Randy Ruby Weaver, Ridge. who was the guy who was under siege at Ruby Ridge. Okay. And Ronson is describing the first thing that Randy Weaver says to someone who finally makes contact with him after a week of this siege going on. And uh, rather than express horror at the murder of his wife or or whatever other thing or or the fact that he had been shot instead he says why are they describing me on the radio as a white supremacist 
when that's not what I believe. And I'm going to play, I'm going to play the clip again uh, just because. I was surprised to hear from Jack that the first thing Randy Weaver yelled through the cabin walls at him, the very first thing he yelled to the outside world, having been under siege for a week, was not, they killed Vicky, they killed my bride. That was the second thing he yelled. It was not, I've been shot too. That was the third thing he yelled. The first thing he yelled was, why is the radio calling me a white supremacist when those are not my views? All right. And I play it twice because, to me, it's, like, heartbreaking in a stupid way um, because this is – I mean, Randy Weaver wasn't a particularly bright guy uh, by, by any light, uh, by any understanding of him. Uh, that doesn't fucking matter. Uh and there's a there's a tendency online now I've noticed in the last little while to dis to use people who are still talking about Ruby Ridge as shorthand for psychos, like like because you are someone who is concerned about government overreach in this particular uh, scenario. You must be a bad person, right? right. That, like, and I don't, I, I, I truly don't understand that level of tribalization. And and but doesn't it, the context, like the sequence of events, is probably why there's that association, right? Because it was like Ruby Ridge, uh, the Waco fiasco, and then like that McVeigh guy took those two incidents as inspiration for the attack in Oklahoma City, right? So like right. this. Uh, an argument could be made that many people can support that's against the the what the law enforcement did. Like I think they were like trying to like uh, get him on like some gun charges on like some weird setup kind of thing to where like he said something that he's selling something illegal so that the ATF can barge in and and, and get him. Right? They're doing this thing. It wasn't so people- the whole the whole gun charge thing was a front to get him to flip on the Aryan right. Nation types, right. right? They knew right. that he had been in contact with bad people and so they set him up to uh, commit a gun crime for somebody that he thought was a friend in order to then force him to flip as a as an informant on to like go as an undercover informant on the Aryan Nation types, which he just like wasn't going to do. Like, yeah, right. fuck you. I'm going to go hide out in my cabin instead. Fuck you. Hide out long enough to so his wife died, but he surrendered. He should have died. Himself. I mean, what is he doing? Like, if you're going to go that way, I mean, not to be critical, but like you're supposed to be holed up to death. Well, and like, you say for his wife to die. His wife was shot for no reason right. uh, by federal U.S. law enforcement. That's but, true. That should have further cemented his stance. Like, he gave in. Like, well, what was he, the still whole point had of two, he still had two kids oh, in please. there. He had Christ's that sake. before him. Anyway, that guy's a bum. Uh, but what is there a word <laughs> for, like, a good argument, but because it's an argument that galvanizes, like, uh, an unsavory set of people like you, you're not like I'm not going to take a proactive step it, to mention that is it is it the Kaczynski is that what we call that <laughs> <laughs> because it's like like the only people that ever invoke those two things you know Ruby Ridge and Waco are like people that believe in those kind of uh, uh, like separatist kind of like right wing right what uh, I think views. what I think Ronson's book is particularly good at is humanizing people that we are very accustomed to dehumanizing that we are it's it's the same thing that that Oppenheimer does in a certain way with the 
with the Robert Downey Jr. character. These are people who are at the same time that they are masters of the universe. They are they are the greatest boogeyman imaginable. They are the great men of history. Uh, also, at the same time, they are small and pathetic and right. desperately in need of a hug human beings right, right. these are, these are just fucking people at the end of the day and randy weaver uh no doubt loved his wife uh no doubt loved his children uh but in that moment when he's talking to the outside world for the first time in a week is deeply injured by the fact that the radio's calling him a white supremacist when that's not actually how i feel right, right. and that's a deeply human thing to be feeling in that moment. And I think it sort of explains the entire last eight years. Uh, and therefore, I guess if it also explains 1995 and, and the extremist that John Ronson was talking to, uh, 30 years ago, maybe it just explains an even bigger picture, uh, than what I'm uh, capable of seeing at the moment. But, uh, Maybe the entire trumpeting can be understand can can be understood at least a little bit more uh, by the fact that Randy Weaver comes out of his cabin and demands to know why the radio is, the radio is calling him a white supremacist when that's not uh, how he actually feels in his heart. Uh, like that, right. that might just and I'm not going to explain it further, but that might just sum things up uh, in an important way, and I'm not entirely I sure how. And and I suspect you know this is like a recurring thing with humans where like you try to like like if you successfully other somebody then you can dismiss all you know any anything else they right. say no matter how valid the point or a valid an experience that they went through. Um, there is also like Katie. I think the most upset she gets is when she feels misunderstood. Like she gets. Yeah, people hate that. She hates it it (laughs) when she's been mischaracterized or misunderstood. Like it it bothers her as much as anything. And funny. And we live in a time now in the, the information and internet age, the social media age, when everyone believes that they fully understand their enemies completely and don't need to hear anything else from them and simply talk amongst themselves and say, no, we have this all figured out. We don't even need to hear from you. Uh, there's, there's nothing that you can say in your defense, and anything that you say in your defense is just digging your own hole deeper. And right. this, that is the sort of artifice and the pretending to seriousness that drives me crazy. Right, but uh, there is an upside to not having to think about the other view to just be like ah fuck those people uh unrelated there was an article in the new york times opinion section this weekend or maybe it was the the business section actually it said we're all water bottle freaks americans are drinking more water how best to contain it that's the burning question i believe i've uh, expressed on the show before you you have but maybe not my my intuition this feeling that i had that Everyone has these fucking flasks, these 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 Nalgene's and the the Camelbacks and the the what are the other brands that are out there? There's the Yeti brand, which is very popular with the bougie set, and there's then there's a lot all of them, all of the different Starbucks ones that people have. Uh, very nice, fancy water bottles that people have, uh, certainly. Or the uh, uh, very basic jug of water that the, those gym bros no, have. No, people like, don't have that. No, no, no. I'm, we're talking specifically about the, the like, fucking $35 okay. for a fancy 
uh, aluminum and steel uh, uh, water plastic. flask or plastic or, or whatever. And my feeling has long been that people have these fucking bottles, but it's not replacing the purchasing of the the single-use plastic refillable water bottle. Instead, it's just like this weird other supplement. It's, it's, it's just this thing that we're buying in addition to being incredibly wasteful. And I've, I've said before, I'm certain I've said this on the show before, uh, uh, we should issue every goddamn breathing American. Who uh, is we? Uh, uh, we, the, the federal the government. federal government, okay. So is, right oh, on the heels of you talking about government overreach, you're suggesting... Yes, the I, go- I okay. happily admit this is and acknowledge that this is perhaps uh, my single strongest fascistic stance. This uh, is what the founding father had, had in mind. That's right. <laughs> this sort uh, of they didn't involvement. know it. They didn't know it. But if they could come back... They yes. would say, yeah. Everyone should be issued a Nalgene or a, a stainless steel. One uh, of each, I think. I think one flask. plastic and one metal. Sure. Perhaps one of each. Uh, perhaps one for hot and one for cold, if that's uh, necessary to people's situation. Okay, so four. And then uh, we, there are no more goddamn single-use plastic bottles. We, we, have, we, we make the fucking rule. We're going to phase them out just like we're phasing out the plastic grocery bags in, in various municipalities or, or states, uh, depending on your situation there. Uh, uh, no more. We don't fucking need them because, and this is from the article, uh, sales of single-serving water bottles have been rising steadily too, reaching 11.3 billion gallons in 2022. That's that's on the heels of $2 billion in reusable water bottles were sold in the United States in 2022, up from around $1.5 billion in 2020. So in just two years, the market for that grew by, depending on how you do the math, either 25% or 33%. I can never quite figure out which way they want me to do that math. But it went from $1.5 to $2 billion, which is an increase of uh, half a billion dollars in just two years. Uh, but at the same time that that was happening, we sold more fucking Dasani and Aquafina and, and because the, of your brother. the fancy square ones. Uh, stop it, people. Stop we have and, and yeah there's a sort of problem right we have fucking 40 of these goddamn flasks upstairs no uh, and we might well we i didn't count beforehand abe how many do you have in your house i have at least one i use one anyways i'm sure i've been yeah. gifted others that i use uh two right now are my main ones i have my uh, nalgene which replaced the nalgene that i had for some 15 years i believe we He's estimated. almost lost it twice i have almost lost it but i have not lost it which is key to having a thing is almost losing it but not uh and then i also have my yeti which i use for for coffee generally speaking although i use my nalgene for for coffee too if you i had use, to pick just both. one i would choose the nalgene because i can make that work for just about every Everything. No, you can't for hot. Don't I don't be want stupid. hot coffee. I, I'm just drinking hot, cold coffee now. It's totally fine. It's not fine. almost everything if I, you can't drink half the beverages. I will pour myself an old-fashioned into my goddamn Nalgene as necessary, uh, whatever it takes. You can do that into your Yeti as well. Fine. If I had to pick, goddammit, I picked the, yet, I picked <laughs> the pick Nalgene. the plastic one. I hear what Bob you're saying. Choice. You'd pick the one made of plastic. Uh the Nalgene lasted me for 15 goddamn years, and I hope the next one does too. It's a fucking scourge. We went to the beach, and uh, everybody had goddamn single-use water bottles. They There's would no th- pour them into their to reusable their- ones. 
There is was this... water that flowed for free out of the out of the faucet, and they would still pour the plastic. Is it's it, very uh, weird. Is it indicative that we're just drinking more water? Is there like some sort of data point? Oh, that I'm sure says... we're drinking more water. So maybe that's why the both you know the disposable ones and the reusable but ones there's are... no reason to buy bottled water it's right. the same thing as except, what comes out of the faucet except is there some uh there seems to be this prejudice against tap water like i, I some of my co-workers say the same thing i'll refill my water bottle from the tap but somebody was like oh what is that that's like from the sink i don't whatever. know so i wonder if that's like they think some it sort tastes of... different messaging that the evil water companies came you know the wa- water bottle companies came up with to were like yeah you're, you you're just... referring to the soda companies when you talk about the evil water companies and that's yeah. all they are they're all yeah. owned by PepsiCo or or the Coca-Cola company and yes it is absolutely a bogus marketing ploy to suggest that there's some there's some greater amount of purity in the in the Dasani than there is in whatever's coming out of the the tap at the IRS office right I, it's nonsense drink it, it, again, I like I prefer cold water. I understand that instinct. I that's why we keep a Brita in the refrigerator so that I can it's always have. It's not even have, filtering anything. It, I can always have cold water. Old. I replace the filter every few months. Do you? Yes. I assumed it was just like not. No, I replace the filter. Good. But uh, but yeah, even that is like sure I'll replace the filter but like it doesn't I'm not worried about the impurities in the tap water it's just that the water is going to sit there for maybe half a day before it gets before I drink it so maybe using the filter is better but like I I do not understand the prejudice against the tap water yeah. there's there's a tiny tiny percentage of people who are uh poisoned by the lead pipes in this country uh it's largely not a problem uh yeah they mostly figure that out yeah it's and the water that you're getting isn't coming from uh the top of some perfect mountain Uh, and even if it was like it's uh, just tap water somewhere else are we living in in awful climate times or not with the weird pollutants and all of the the rain and the acid rain and all the rest of it like how do you know that that's even good water in your uh some of it's alkanized in your scheme that's uh, doomed to fail, you know, because uh, of how uh, people respond to, like, changing the, the type of light bulb or, like, this gas stove, like, all those initiatives have gone through without any issue. Uh, I'm sure people would receive your idea the same way. But, like, what happens a few generations? Like, all the existing bottles now are in circulation and you just hand me down it to the to the kids? Like, if you phase it out by the end of this decade, let's say, get we'll all We'll be dead shit. before that. And then, by the end of this decade, uh, yeah. but like in the future, like I'm gonna do hand me downs. I can't buy my own if I was a young kid. I mean, yeah, sure, you can buy your own. There, uh, but there has to be some sort of limiting principle at work here, right? We can't just have. And I, I, I've said before about the single-use plastic bottles. Like, I want to see the actual price of these things reflected in the price at checkout, right? right? And so I've gotten to the point where, like, I don't – I used to buy – when I would go to the grocery store, and I was drinking more soda then anyway, so it's sort of a – maybe this isn't entirely fair. But you could get a Diet Coke at the grocery store checkout for like a dollar, right, like back yeah. in the day. Uh, at, at Costco used to have a Coke machine on the way out of the store that would sell you a 20-ounce bottle of Coke or, uh, for a dollar. Or the water was 25 cents. Yeah, the, the water is still a quarter. 
but they used to have the Coke machine that would sell you the 20 ounce bottle of Coke for a dollar, just like you used to be able to get fucking 20 years ago when you go to the gas station or, or the, the grocery the store. The vending machine checkout. around the store from my work, still 50 cent sodas. Oh, wow. It's back in time. You go back to the 90s on nice. the side of the convenience store next to work. The point here is that it, it's now like two nineteen maybe or $2.29 to buy a cold 20-ounce Diet Coke at the grocery store checkout line, which is like fucking outrageous, especially considering like just 100 yards in the other direction, you can get a two-liter for like, a, I think, about that same price probably. Uh, but of course, I don't want a two-liter. I want to drink a ice-cold Coca-Cola in the time that it takes me to get from the grocery store checkout back to my house. Like that's what I'm buying there is the convenience but i don't do it nearly as much anymore because it's two dollars and 29 cents instead of just a dollar a dollar fuck yeah who right. cares it's right. just a dollar 229 is like uh i mean is it a lot of money no but it feels to me like too much money for that level of convenience that then it's just wasteful on top of it and i wonder if part of what's working on my brain is like that 229 better reflects the actual cost of the thing in terms of disposal and therefore i'm not going to buy it maybe that's what's working on my brain right and so i'm buying less of it i think we need to uh, encourage more of that everything should be fucking five six dollars a pop if it's just going to end up in the goddamn trash and that's how you stop people from wasting so much shit all the time that could work the alternative, I guess, is to like reinstitute these like buyback programs that they have. Where like in California, I think still, and in some other places, it's like they charge you an extra fifty cents for every uh, piece of shit single use thing that you get, yeah. and you only get that fifty cents back uh, when you recycle the thing. But that's an imperfect system too, because the recycling just ends up in the goddamn landfill anyway. So I don't know uh, what problem that's solving. Maybe the the hassle of going through that whole thing. Is going to discourage people from similarly discouraging you from just buying the single use shit. I don't know. Uh, And I've seen it play out on my own children's faces. Like uh, we got Gatorade squeezy bottles at the start of the Little League season last year. Like it was part of the gear that I handed out to the kids. They got a uniform baseball cap, they got a uniform shirt, and then also with all of the stuff, they were supposed to get a reusable squeezy Gatorade bottle. Uh, like you see the pros have on the side of the field where the they got that yeah. one water boy whose whole job is to come out and just squirt yeah. water into the football players' mouths that, or what have you. That's actually the, the type of water bottle I use. So, so much easier. Just Right. And so the kids were all excited to get one of those, but I only got 12 and my team had 13 kids on it. So I, of course, as uh, any good father will do, I shorted my own kid. Right. I said – uh, <laughs> I, I made sure all the other kids had one, and then my daughter didn't get one because I was like, look, we've got fucking 40 of these things at home anyway in some form or fashion, and it's going to be fine. She was fucking heartbroken to not get the squeezy Gatorade bottle just like all of her teammates got, and I had to promise her that we, I was, daddy was going to go on Amazon and buy a squeezy – even though we already have 40 of the fucking things, uh, not quite exactly the same, I have to buy this one that so that she can have one just like her teammates. She's already the only girl on the team. Right. Sure. I understand. But it's like 
she didn't want it because like like what she wanted was to possess the thing, right? And that's how they get you with the, all well, these fucking water bottles. Well, and she wanted to be like everybody to else. Like, everybody yeah. else got one. Yeah. Sure. And it, and it, obviously it was an injustice happening, right? Like everybody else got one and I didn't and that's not fucking fair. And that and I fully understand that. But at the same time, the psychology at play there I think also has to do with like that sort of uh that consumerist instinct that we all sort of have or have have, have had cultivated in us which is like i want the thing that exists because it exists not because it fills a particular need or i'm going to do better in the world by having this thing uh that i didn't have before but simply because here is a thing and i want that thing uh the same reason that we have subscriptions to uh, half a dozen streaming services that we hardly watch right and and, and to to Lori, like what laurie said also because people just want to be like other people i think that's why all these people are walking around with these bottles in the first place. Like it's like, like with the coffee thing. Like I've seen people at work like walk around with coffee in the morning and they're like nursing it still like two three hours later. It's like come on, you're done with that coffee. But just they just see people like it's a thing. Like people walk around with a coffee cup and I think the water bottle is a similar thing where they see other people do it. They're like shit. I guess I'll do it too. And here we are. I guess I think it. I think that you can solve a huge portion of this problem simply by having more public facilities that offer refillable water bottles uh, situations. Like you go to Disney and we were at Disney and I think I saw one. They really want you to buy the water. They desperately want you to buy the fucking $4 and a, like four, $4 like and a quarter. Bus- it's like they're a business. It's Dasani. like they're making money. Like, fuck that. You're in Florida. Just have cold water on tap readily available. Coca-Cola's going to get theirs just fine. You don't have to uh, bend to the knee of goddamn the Coca-Cola company who wants to sell a bunch of uh, single-use waters to all these people. Like, let And yeah, the water that does come out of the refillable stations is not very pleasant, right? It's, and it's made purposefully so. Oh, it's yeah. not, it's not cold. It's a conspiracy afoot, definitely. It, I mean, I know you're saying that sarcastically, no, I, just... but it's, it's literally true. They don't want you to have a successful or, or a pleasant experience of just refilling your own water bottle. They want you to spend four bucks six different times that day in the 100-degree heat. And that's fucking shitty. At quick shitty. service restaurants, you can get free ice water as much as you want. Yeah, yeah, but still, like that means you have to wait in line and and no doubt they – like. The reason that they want you to wait in line and and get the free cup of ice and or ice water is because they know that you're also uh, as long as I'm here and I waited right. in line for eight minutes, I might as well get the pretzel bites or the corn dog nuggets or whatever the fuck. Right. Uh, I get it. It's a it's a it's an enterprise. We're all out here to make money, but you could make the world like like talk about solving actually solving problems that fucking matter. Like. Uh, readily available public bathrooms and refillable uh, drinking water stations like in airports at at in all of our major cities and airports would make the world a thousand times better oh, they have just, them at airports just being a human being in the world would be better with that one simple modification and it right. and it would it would take literally no political will whatsoever like people would fucking love that shit Oh, Republicans wouldn't like that somebody would cry about it i bet you somebody would you cry shouldn't about have it. Th- oh, no it's yeah, infrastructure, and you don't want to spend money because why should I have to pay for someone else's water? Republicans wouldn't like it. You know it. 
I disagree. I think that I think that even Republicans would appreciate f- public su- facilities that allow you to get a cold sip of they water. They don't like public uh, facilities as a concept. Yeah, the worst of them do not. The most obnoxious of them do not. And and the, in the same way that the absolute worst people in uh, Kansas are going to uh, win primaries on the backs of uh, never an abortion ever in our state, but 60% of the population is going to show up and say we're actually going to have uh, abortions. Like the vast, the vast silent middle is actually fairly sensible and just wants the world to be a better place. You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob and Abe. Find the show on Facebook or Twitter, I guess. Head on over to brainiron.com or castironbrains.com for a show note. Also, email the show, brainironpodcast at gmail.com, as did listener and frequent commenter on the show, Corey, in the last week, to let us know that uh, he also plays Mulkey. And because uh, we were discussing the, the, the fun beach slash yard game Mulkey on the show last week, which suggests to me that the crossover between Mulkey fans and cast iron brains That's fans huge. is enormous. It's that massive. The, the correlation between those two audiences it's like, it's like half. is as high as, as almost any other correlation imaginable, right? Like the people <laughs> who enjoy the game Mulkey and cast iron brains, it's practically, a, like you see those Venn diagrams? Yep. It's, a, it's a fucking circle. That's, that's where we need, this should become a Mulkey podcast and perhaps I'm for it. our audience would grow. Uh, Corey wanted to say that uh, he and his uh, compatriots who play the game with him have devised a uh, a rule that answers Chris's problem with the game, which is that there are no rebuttals in the game. And I agree with Corey. I and like Corey's to an idea. Extent, I agree with Chris as well. But uh, the but game Chris, as we were playing it was was one thing. And I agree it could be modified, but that we weren't playing a modified right. game. But yes, Corey's system of modification, that is a absolute thumbs up, Corey. Well done. Corey would be good at you. that. He's good at stuff. Yeah, of course. Uh, the opening and closing themes of the show were composed by Mark Gillick, tetramermusic.com, T-E-T-R-A-M-E-R music.com. For more from him, Abe, you let slip. That you went to a movie theater in Kansas City in order to watch The Meg 2, which uh, upon first seeing the trailer for that movie, uh, Lori believed it was a parody of some sort uh, and not an actual movie. Instead was just one some awful commercial that they put at the beginning of, <laughs> of the movies before the actual previews start. But no, in fact... Uh, they made this movie about like prehistoric sharks that come out from the center of the earth and then like gobble up other prehistoric creatures or something along those lines. Uh, how More was or less. it, Abe? Uh, so just just so there's no confusion, this was not a good movie. Uh, so no surprise there. Not not a particularly good movie, but it was entertaining. So I'm now realizing that you know I have uh, AMC's uh, subscription. Uh, for watching movies, and most of the movies that I watch are through that subscription. But on occasion, you know, like an Oppenheimer, you know, in Atlanta, we don't have a big IMAX screen. The only IMAX screen that's any good is with Regal, the other company. So I would pay out of pocket to watch movies on occasion, <laughs> like right. I did with uh, the 
Tom Cruise movie, Mission Whatever, and Oppenheimer, and uh, James Cameron's Avatar yeah. 2. Big big event movies you would right. pay a little bit extra for. Sir, tell me, if you're if where you're going with this story <laughs> is that your AMC A-list pass did not get you into this one, but you had to pay extra for it, uh, my level of respect for you might reach new lows. So oh, the was, next two is added to the list of out-of-pocket expense oh movies. Oh, my God. Because in my defense, there wasn't a uh, theater, an AMC theater that was – this was a uh, at work. We were so close to the office that we just used Uber, so we didn't rent a car f- for work because right. our hotel – and our, so I'm not going to get an Uber to watch a movie that's like 20 miles away, wherever in, in Kansas City. There's a movie theater across the screen – across the street from my hotel room like i'm looking at it and it's like it's like right nice. there i can just you go downstairs and you didn't have to walk across the street now no, that is ver- <laughs> I, that's an argument i can't really i have no answers for right yes i <laughs> could have just not watched the movie right that that's a solution mm. right but I you like, could hey. have rented one in the hotel so the the reason why I went, uh, that, that I was drawn to it is because like oh I've never heard of B and B theaters is some stupid fucking family <laughs> chain, uh, and it turned out that theater used to be an uh, Alamo or whatever uh, which oh. we don't have in Atlanta, and so I was like oh let me see what all the hubbub is with the Alamo types, and uh, I could see why they left because there's only like three screens and one of them is like good like a good size and that's where the Meg Two showed. It's a very nice screen. Uh, and I'm just watching this shitty movie with like 10 other people. It wasn't a full theater. So I just went there for the experience. I knew going in, I've seen Meg 1 uh, or the Meg or whatever the fuck it was called. So I wasn't expecting anything. I will say, though, I know sharks are like supposed to be menacing and whatever. But if you just look at them, they just have a derpy fucking stupid face. Oh, they're no, not they're like, very scary. They, they don't <laughs> – they didn't have all that power. You would just laugh at no, them. No, uh, no, I wouldn't. I'm scared. <laughs> Uh, so not worth seeing. I'm guessing not unless you happen to be stuck <laughs> on a work trip and there's a theater right. across the street from you and you're doing nothing else. I would uh, say just wait for the streaming. But Is I'm paying like twenty seven. Just... Actually, I got like a popcorn and a drink, which I usually don't do. I think I spent a lot of money there watching a shitty movie. Well, uh, sometimes you got to treat yourself, Abe. On the uh. On the streaming front, I watched uh, on the plane, one of the planes that I was on, um, there's a Steph Curry documentary about like mm. him coming up on Apple. And I realized, you know, this is obviously not Michael Jordan's fault, but there, it, we're like so in the golden... A, so it's, what you're telling me is there's a Steph Curry commercial on yes. Apple TV. Yeah. yeah, we're in the golden age of sports documentary propaganda. And I'm... Well, and it's a good time for it, like right before football starts. Yeah, and the timing is a little weird, but like it was fine. It's just like, oh, I was a scrawny kid. I'm now like less scrawny and I'm good at basketball. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it was fine, but that was what I watched. We, uh, I took the kids to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Mutant Mayhem in the theaters because uh, they had wanted to see it. And I was looking at my little Alamo app and I realized that with Meg 2 debuting the next day, TMNT was going to be moved permanently out of the, the Dolby Atmos, big, yeah. the big screen uh, that it's best to see movies in. And if once it migrated away from the big screen, I don't think I would have bothered. So I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's go. And we went and saw that, and that was a really good time. I actually... 
I actually really enjoyed that movie. I thought that was very well done. And that is despite the fact that I went in expecting to be annoyed because it by the previews, it looked like it's like, okay, we're aiming for the kids this time. Right. Like it felt like it was aimed sort of squarely at the children, but it managed to sort of toe the line sort of down the middle where while the attitudinally it was very much uh, geared towards the less mature in the audience, uh, the aesthetic of it and the certainly the sounds that it made, there's a lot of like uh, old school hip hop and rap from the 90s and mid 90s in that uh, movie right. on the right. soundtrack. And then Ice Cube plays the uh, plays the big bad, plays uh, the, the super fly guy uh, in an enjoyable fashion. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was uh, very well done. It's by the same guy who made Mitchell versus the Mitchells versus the Machines, oh. which was an animated movie on Netflix a few years ago. Uh, and I, I think that it, it is it was interesting enough to look at uh, that it, uh, made it all worthwhile uh, and worth checking out. Uh, if These you have kids love the any turtles nostalgia now. All for, they for that sort watch. of stuff. We are also watching. We've watched the first episode of Hard Knocks on HBO. Yeah. Uh, featuring the the great charmless Aaron Rodgers, uh, doing his best <laughs> to charm all of us despite being uh, charmless. The uh, uh, I think I've on the second episode. Uh, there's a thing where the my boy uh, Liev Schreiber. Uh, yeah, we saw that. Oh, that was, yeah, that was the first. That was the first episode. No, yeah. That, okay. Yeah, that's, that was. I've only seen good. one episode. It's just very weird having the guy be like I don't know who yeah. thought that <laughs> just. Let's, just have the guy doing the narration in the show. Yeah, we'll keep watching music. that. Though this, I mean, yeah. I say he's charmless, but it is enjoyable to watch the circus it's around. Always good to watch Aaron Rodgers and the Jets, and it's like I have so much preemptive Schadenfreude because of my full confidence that this team is going to lose ten it's- or eleven games this year. Like, and, and like I know they're a good team and they're probably improved. But, like, I'm just so absolutely positive that they're going to lose 10 or 11 games, and it's going to be so much fun to watch it happen. It's, e- it's either going to be, like, a disaster like that, or they're going to have hopes dashed, like, they're going to lose yeah. in spectacular Jets fashion at some point where it's important. Right. The The guy opens, the coach opens the show with the meeting, talking about what Eagles do and how they, like, you know, avoid crows or something right they go so far right. they took, the problem is that there is already a football team <laughs> called the eagles right. who who won the not, fucking super bowl they last just won year. the super bowl <laughs> right and and that it's a it's that's not very, the team he's coaching it's very <laughs> second team in new york it's very it's very like second tier football team new york jet style football to have your coach get up in the front of the room at the start of the year and be like, hey, Jets, why don't you behave like this other team's mascot and be more like this other team that won the Super Bowl last year? And and that's how we're going to be good. It's like, oh, man, you really don't get it, do you? you I, I, wonder, a- I wonder if it came through the Eagles – football team and it was used in that context and it was too lazy to update it to like jets know. or something <laughs> that's right you know how jets deal with with cr- the crows right they can't because a jet doesn't have any talons when you're or a jet a you're the jet all the way from the first cigarette to your last dying day that's how you start a football meeting right. so the jet when the when the crow lands on the jet he has to climb up to 30 40,000 feet to suffocate the crow 
Just like the Eagles. <laughs> oh, not the you know, but not the Eagles, because the Jets. Although, what is the story there? Like, you're not even like taking the the competition head on. You're like using some other way to like win. Like, just go up there until it dies of other causes. Like, you should yeah. be a little more formidable than we that. We are also watching a very important show on Max. Yeah. Uh, so there's a show filmed in your neck of the woods. Oh. Uh, called Little John Wants to Do What is the name of this home improvement show. Uh, and I'll... <laughs> it, it, you know exactly what it's about. It's about <laughs> that. It's about uh, Little John, the the great rapper and producer of, of much or mid-2000s The only hip-hop. tolerable bar songs, honestly. Uh Friend and frequent collaborator of uh, Ludacris, among other uh, Atlanta hip-hop luminaries, uh, Little John, is also has a passion for home renovation. Interior and design. Interior design. Exterior design. And is working with uh, some annoying lady who uh, She's fine. also does this sort of work. And they go into rich white people. Well, not just white people. But so they, far. They, they, they seem to go into... People who can afford People to redo their houses. Who can afford to throw $150,000 at a problem and say, look, our basement kind of sucks. Lil John needs to solve it. Uh, let's have Lil John <laughs> reimagine, Lil our John sp- <laughs> reimagine our space and then just sort of let him cut him loose and let him do what he wants to do there. And so, that's a whole show. They, they do a whole show where Lil John goes around suburban Atlanta and finds rich white people who will let him redo their space. And he's always wearing T-shirts that say things like "Yeah." <laughs> yeah his That's T-shirt. Great. His T-shirt often says "What?" <laughs> I guess uh, he needs that for people to know. Who no, he and this is a great no, bit. No, it's this for is, him. This is not meant to be criticism in any way. I fully endorse this I, bit that this show does. Little John shows up. Once he's surveyed the place, and then they go back to the design workshop, and then they come back a couple weeks later. And he starts off the conversation by pouring everyone a shot of tequila. He whips it out of nowhere. <laughs> like, as, like he has like it in a Puffins. large pocket or behind his back. And here are suddenly there are four shot glasses and a bottle of fancy tequila. And you can tell that this is the only part that the, the white people aren't in on. Okay. Like they're always they're genuinely surprised that like oh he wants us to do a sh- it's eleven in the morning yeah, probably, I guess yeah. okay and then <laughs> at least with the first and second episodes it seems like they have more than one because it you know it's edited yeah so it's like shots of tequila cheers and then they're like yeah everything you're saying sounds great right. I trust you so much <laughs> let's take naps. Yeah, let's let's put a stage with concert lighting in our basement, Lil John. That sounds like a great idea. With with silver plated uh, ceiling drop tiles too. Yeah, great idea. Thanks. That is a interesting strategy. Like get them plastered so they're like in a diminished capacity, so that yeah. any dumb idea that I come up with will sound like a good one. Yeah. Oh, he has great ideas. This is not. I mean, he's not fucking I'll, up their I'll, houses. I'll, he's doing. I'll watch it. I. I I guess the show escaped me, but like I'll, I'll give it a, a watch. That sounds interesting. Do, yeah, it's take... called Lil John Wants to Do What? 
does he take some feedback? Like we're looking at this type of, we're looking for this type of look, and then he'll take. Yes. Their, okay. Yeah, he's trying to sort he's of. He's doing okay. interior so he's not design. Like Going to surprise his big them, ideas like, to yeah. their specific needs. Okay. Yes, certainly. Uh, yeah, it's good. He's. I want him to do our basement. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, and it's. I can't imagine watching it on regular television because of commercials and stuff. But like in these forty-two minute chunks, it is like to me, it's like barely tolerable. Like, yes, okay, I can do this while dicking around on my phone or or whatever else is going you on. You can't. You have to watch. It's a very visual show. Uh, so this is one of those shows that's actually on television on some. No, it's on cable Max. Channels? No, I think it was on TLC or right. something. Oh, or yeah, HGTV. no, it's on HGTV. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it's for they, sure there HGTV. Are, there are breaks like factored okay. in. Yes. You just don't have to watch them if, you, okay. if you're on the stream. Yeah, we're service. watching it on Max. We, we also saw, and I mentioned the commercials for this reason, because I saw they have House Hunters collections on, mm. on Max now. So they have like... Uh, 180 fucking episodes of House so Hunters. Like, here's collection 70 of House Hunters, wow. and there's like 180 episodes. It's like, holy shit, how many of these goddamn things have they made? Uh, but I also, like, I cannot fathom being in a place in my life where I go to the Max app and I. I'm thumbing through, and I'm like, you know what I'm going to put on? It's commercial-free House Hunters. Oh, yes. So that I can bang out these episodes in like 18 and a half minutes and then be on to the next one. Like House Hunters to me is sort of the ultimate, there is literally nothing else on. Right. And I'm not and watching it. And what I it. really want to watch is commercials. And I'm not watching it anyway, but that's what I'm going to put on. And then occasionally I'll glance up and I'll say something uh, antisocial about the assholes who are on the television <laughs> and being particular in ways that I find obnoxious. Uh, but the idea of going and seeking that out on the app where there won't be commercials, like there's something about the rhythm of that show right. that demands the commercial break. And I refuse to find out what it's like to indulge in that sort of thing uh without those commercial breaks involved i wonder uh what who that who fits in that demographic or like they like terrible oh, shows but they the only thing worse than a terrible show is watching it with interruption like so it's like i want i want the shit no because that's right. when you get up <laughs> and do back. something yeah but uh, it's such a. But I think these kind of shows lend themselves to you can be doing that something. You're not messing much. They, they yeah, you're talk, doing something yeah, else. Yeah, you're doing laundry. Not the little John one. You have to focus on that. Yes, that, that's appointment television. I'll give that. A this watch. is this is what they want. They're 15, and then they're 18, and then they're 21, and eventually they're 30, and then eventually they're 60 dollars a month. This is why they <laughs> so that they can deliver you some of their. Alexandria-sized library of House Hunters International from now until the time you draw your final breath. And then uh, they'll continue charging your debit card right. long after you're dead, as long as there's still money in the account. Abe, have you got anything else for us tonight? Nope. I guess that's all we've got for tonight, then, and we will talk to you next time. Later. so scared you could say vagina on a r-rated movie you know it's weird with that argument that maybe not on uh, theatrical releases but like streaming services they still have a lot of just that i mean yeah they're they're racy yeah there's no they're not pulling any punches there maybe with like are any of them any good though 
Mm. Well, if you want to talk about what I've been watching, then sure. No, no. I walked by Lori on her treadmill, and there's some pretty racy shit going on on the. I was watching Insecure there from was, HBO. There was, there was fucking. But happening it was on Netflix. On the, yeah, what's that about? Just to get more. I don't know. What's dumb is I didn't both, watch though, it the forever. whole time we it was on HBO. To both yeah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I was in a shitty mood all day because of a talk I had with my husband this morning. Oh. <laughs> I'm choking because it was a talk. The talk was me saying, boy, Disney Plus talk about it. is raising I... prices by $3. Maybe we should consider uh, juggling one or two of these that we subscribe to. How about to. we juggle the MLB And MLB Lori looks app. at me with a face of death. And says, how about not? And I'd say, all right, I'll go sit in the other room. And that was the talk, apparently. Uh, we do juggle ML the MLB app. I don't fucking uh, pay for it. How much does it cost a year? At all, from September through April of next year. I, I sort of understand, like... Hitler had a specific idea in mind, which is that the Jews and the blacks and the gypsies are bad and they're polluting German blood and we need to get rid of them. Whereas Lenin is more like, uh, look, I've got a political program here and I don't give a fuck. So we're going to kill 50 million people and it's going to be just fine because right. you won't get in line. Uh, so I sort of understand. Like, but like you can imagine like, no better. Look, it's such an absurd maybe thing. if you present it, if you present it as I don't, Hitler I don't was a deranged psycho. Who, is, who had a sickness to him, whereas Lenin was a clear-headed ideologue who had no problem uh, doing genocide despite not being a deranged psycho uh, who, who had a sickness about him, right? Like somehow the, the, there's a rationality to Lenin that makes him more despisable than the, the Hitler monster who is just – there's something wrong with him. Right, but – why is what, why are you talking about this? The proceeding was created with 100% human content. <laughs>